You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everyone, to the Healthy Sensitive Podcast, a podcast for highly sensitive superheroes and creative renegades who are trying to figure out how to add value to their communities, really come alive in their work, while also staying healthy and vibrant in the process. I'm Leah Burkhart, a health coach, health nut, really, introvert, highly sensitive person, and goofball. Uh, <laughs> so I'm your hostess. What I want to talk about today is the concept of productivity. I feel like it's something that keeps coming up, uh, whether it's in my meetup groups or whether it's in emails that people send to me. And honestly, it's something I've been really interested in, especially as a coach. You know, like my goal is to help people unfold into their best selves and sort of come alive. Well, it's hard to change careers, you know, cultivate new relationships, build communities, uh, develop a sense of healthy, robust well-being. I mean, that requires an amount of effort. And you, we all only have a certain number of hours each day. So how do we get as much bang for our buck as possible? Well, as it turns out, as I mean, no surprise here, there's lots of extremely productive people already who have figured out systems that have worked tremendously well for them. And as I was digging through this, uh, you know, going through all of these different types of systems, I found it kind of intriguing to kind of go, whoa, I mean, there's so many different ways that people have crafted strategies for maximizing their potential uh, and without getting bored, without feeling burned out. So I just kind of want to go through what a lot of these different systems look like. Uh, The first example I'm going to bring up is Elon Musk, because, I mean, come on, (laughs) talk about someone who's productive. So evidently, Elon Musk plans out his day in time blocks. This is a really common theme, a thread that I keep seeing amongst really productive people. A lot of them just organize it slightly different. But in his case, he blocks out time in five minute increments according to an articles I've read of him. So we're talking like every like minute to minute, his, his time is mapped out and he maps his time out the night before. So evidently, you know, spending maybe 10 minutes the night before just really mapping out what each of the moments that goes by is going to look like. Woo, <laughs> that seems pretty intense, but hey, whatever works. So in his case, it would be, okay, so if it's a task he's trying to com- like complete, okay, you get five minutes for it. And the idea behind this is, okay, well, if you limit yourself to no more than five minutes, it's incredible how efficient one can become. It's kind of utilizing the, if the last, you know, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would get get done rule. I don't know how effective that would be for the average highly sensitive person. That seems like a, an intense, constant state of stimulation that might not work out well, but I like the concept. And with that concept in mind, I want to segue over to something that I think works really well for me. And I'm going to, I call it the 15 minute rule. And I thought I was oh so very clever because I have so many interests. I want to learn Spanish. I, I like podcasting. I love to write. Writing is my, is my, I don't know if I'd say passion. It's more like my love. It's my warm, fuzzy blanket. 
I love to read. I want to learn new things. I want to, you know, connect with other people and, and make meetup groups. So lots and lots of interests. And so if I spend an hour on each of those, it's amazing how quickly those the 24 hours in a day that I have go out the window. So that doesn't really work. So I started playing with it a little bit and tried 15 minute segments and that worked really well. So instead of thinking, okay, I have to finish an entire blog article today, it's spend 15 minutes writing a blog and then spend 15 minutes writing my book and then spend 15 minutes on a Spanish app and then spend 15 minutes doing yoga. And it's really remarkable how productive I feel. I don't know to what extent, I mean, you know, talk to me in a year from now, but I'm certainly doing a lot better with consistent writing in my blog because 15 minutes feel doesn't feel insurmountable. It feels really doable. But it's also long enough that I get a chunk completed. So I can settle in. Five minutes, again, it's just like, oof, Elon Musk, you got, you got some superpower brain going on there. But I thought I was super clever. But it turns out there's actually a book called The 15-Minute Rule by Carolyn Buchanan. So, and she speaks to this exact thing. She talks about, you know, if you're trying to get something done, what seems to be the primary barrier between me and the thing getting done is the sense of it being insurmountable, the sense of it being so big. And so instead, it's like, just take 15 minutes. And if it's cleaning off your desk, if it's building something, writing something, whatever it is, 15 minutes. And even though it doesn't seem like it's that much, see what happens in a week. It's well over an hour spent. It's almost two hours. I think it's an hour and 45 minutes that you will have spent by the end of the week. And how many of us wait? We keep thinking, oh, we're going to wait for that mythical two-hour window. We can get the whole thing completed. But life doesn't work that way. So I'm a huge fan of the 15-minute rule personally, and I'm having so much fun with it. That's what I'm finding is so important. I like doing 15 minutes of yoga. It's nice. (laughs) I like doing 15 minutes of meditation. It's enough that I can get something out of it without feeling like, ugh, God, I have to sit down and do this thing now. To that end, though, there are some, like when you're at work and you're trying to complete a project, sometimes breaking everything up in 15-minute increments isn't an option. And so in the workflow, like the, the workflow, in a standard office, apparently there's this algorithm that's been crafted that says, here's the equation that we should all use, 52 minutes of work followed by 17 minutes of a break. So it would be 52 minutes of trying to write, and then you would take a 17-minute break. Or if you worked at an accounting, it wouldn't matter where you work. But when you're at the office, this is something that people are being invited to try. And you can imagine, it's like, wow, that's a lot of breaks. That sounds pretty neat. I was amused by the fact that a number of people who tried it, practically speaking, did find it challenging, mostly because it's so arbitrary. But it's got some research to back it up. So if you have a really, really flexible type of work, um, this is especially great for those who might be working from home. Uh, who do a lot of contract work or who, I don't mean contract like contractor, I mean, you know, it's more about getting a project done and not necessarily about, you must be at this place at this time and do this meeting. Because most meetings aren't 52 minutes. They're usually an hour plus. Uh, And most meetings don't honor the 52, 17 minute rule. But again, if the work you do is creative or it's something that has more to do with just get the thing done and less to do with where you need to be and when, it's really helpful. I mean, I've tried it and I thought it was interesting. 
I, I like the 15 minute rule better, but yeah, you can play with it. And the next one that I came up was the, the Pomodoro method. And this is kind of similar, but it just breaks it in half, really. So it's 25 minutes of work followed by a five minute break. Okay, tried that too. Uh, I think it kind of depends. Once you're in the flow of doing the thing, uh, I think it works pretty well. My problem is that 25 minutes, as it turns out, 25 and 52 is just long enough where it feels like a sizable chunk that I have to make room for. Whereas again, 15 minutes, it's amazing where I can find 15 minutes. So that's my preference, but definitely worth looking at. Try the Pomodoro method. And speaking of creativity, I you've, there was no way I was going to get through an entire podcast without using Elizabeth Gilbert's name. You guys knew that. But she had talked about in, oh, was it a podcast or was it just a YouTube video? Don't remember. But anyway, I know that she's the one who said it. She made a point of saying that she never does anything creative for more than an hour. It puts too much pressure on the brain, and a lot of the times, whatever she tries to force herself to complete an hour later isn't as good quality. So that isn't to say she only works an hour a day, I don't imagine, uh, but it's more just at a time. An hour, that's about, that's her max. So just something to keep in mind for those creatives out there. Okay, so that's all well and good, but now... How do you prioritize the kinds of things that need to get done? So it's one thing if you know, okay, great. So 52 minutes of work, 17 minute break, or you know, 15 minutes for each of these tasks, which is what I'm doing. Let's say that you're using that one. How do you know what tasks are worth doing and worth putting on the list of your 15 minute rule and which ones you can kind of let go? Because this is another place where people get trapped. The first one is starting. And I think that's the biggest one for most folks. I don't care if you're trying to start a workout or you're trying to start a new dietary regimen or if you're trying to clean your house. (laughs) You name the thing that folks are trying to achieve. Most of the time, the hard part is starting. Once the momentum gets going, you know, finishing the task is much less challenging. So how do we determine what's worth our time or worth our while to even start? That's the next thing. This one is the, okay, what goes on our list? And what I believe it's in the seven habits of highly successful people or highly effective people or anyway, one of them was they don't prioritize their schedule, they schedule their priorities. Well, in this particular, this is called the Eisenhower box. So Eisenhower apparently organized himself. This was a talk about an extremely productive human. Anyone who ends up in the Oval Office most of the time has to be a pretty productive person. So this is how Eisenhower did it. He organized whatever the task might be as either being not important or important and then urgent and not urgent. And he created a box. So I'll use the concept of like, you know, on the on one side, you have important and not important. And then on the uh, sort of like X and Y axis. So on the X axis, urgent, not urgent on the Y axis, not important and important. And then just fill in boxes. The important and urgent. So some are both urgent and important. Okay, those do and do it now. It's important. And yet and it's urgent. So as an example, it might be right article for today. It's due today and it's important to get it done. It's urgent and it's important. Some things, though, are urgent but not important. His sort of strategy there was to delegate. 
It might be urgent, but it's not actually that important. So examples that are given are like, you know, if you're scheduling interviews, you're booking flights, it's logistics. Who can you delegate it out to? It's errands that aren't really big value errands. Uh, Kiyosaki also talked about this concept as well, although I think he used different terms. I believe it's Robert Kiyosaki. He wrote uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So he talked about the difference between like different types of the, the value of the job you're doing. So he was talking to someone who was a lawyer who was at the hardware store getting some kind of a gadget to fix his toilet for his rental property. And Kiyosaki apparently said, why are you doing that job? That's not a hundred dollar an hour job. That's like a 20 an hour, like $20 an hour job. And you're doing it. That's insane. Delegate. So that would be a perfect example. It's urgent, but it's not actually important. Not important to the person who's this attorney. In his time, when he's busy being an attorney, maybe charged $100, $200 an hour. So that's a task better delegated. Now we have something that's not urgent, but important. That is that, that's the one that falls into the camp of it's not prioritizing your schedule, it's scheduling your priorities. So examples of this might be meditation, exercise, meal prepping. It's not urgent. I mean, obviously, if you're hungry, it might feel urgent, but it's not urgent in the the classic sense. It doesn't have to technically happen right now. And so what we have a habit of doing is pushing it off until we have, quote unquote, space in our day that we can squeeze it in. But often what ends up happening is we don't do it at all. So exercise would be an example, um, you know, cultivate, designing a long-term business strategy, uh, like researching for articles that you want to write. It's, it's, it needs to get done. It's important. It's just not urgent, but you got to get it done. So the best way to work with that is to schedule it. Don't prioritize it and make it squeeze into all these other blocks of time. Put it on a schedule. This is how highly effective people make sure that they get their exercise in. They don't wait for the mythical, magical hour that will just kind of surface. There is no such thing. But they put it on their calendar and treat it like a dental appointment. Okay, so then finally, the last one. There are some things that are not urgent and not important. Those? Delete. Get rid of them. Watching TV, checking social media, like sorting through junk mail in your email inbox. Like, what are you doing? It's not urgent and it's not important to you. Let it go. And this is quite frequently with the clients that I work with. This is where all of the time goes. I can't tell you how often I work with people and and the conversation is, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And so then I kind of gently prod and sort of say, okay, well, where is your time going? Like break it down for me, like map out your day for me so I can really see what we're dealing with here. And sure enough, by the time they've put in, they've blocked in their the time they spend at work and the amount of time they sleep, which is significant, but there's often, and then you put in time for eating and time for, you know, various other things. And generally by the time they've blocked those things in, there's quite often still four or five hours that are unaccounted for. And then there's that awkward moment where people realize, oh, crap, huh, I'm not getting away with this. So it's like, all right, well, where are those, where is that going? Some of it's probably transition time. So it's the time it takes to drive to work from home. It's the time it takes for us to switch gears from one project to the next. So some of that's valid. Let's give us, let's be generous and give you as much as an, an hour, maybe even two if you live in like the Bay Area and have to commute. I mean, you know, it, it can be significant, but now you're still looking at maybe 
three hours of time. Where's that going? And more often than not, it's social media and it's television. Not important, not urgent, my friends. Let it go. Unless, of course, it does feel important to you. Maybe that's something that you bond with your spouse in spending time with them to do. If it's important, great. That's something you want to schedule. But if it ain't and it's not urgent, you squeeze it out. Uh, so, that was, so that was Eisenhower's approach. Now we're moving on to Warren Buffett's two-list approach. I think I've even mentioned this approach once. So evidently, the, the story goes that Warren Buffett was, you know, going to be flying because he's Warren Buffett, so naturally he has his own jet. And the pilot was chatting with him before they were taking off. And he said, you know, what advice would you have for a guy like me to improve on you know, prove my finances or, or really become more of a success than I am now. And so Warren Buffett says, sure, I can help you with that. Just start with list out 25 goals that you have for yourself. And so he says, okay, great. No problem. He writes out the 25 goals. He goes, great, great. Now circle your top five. And he does. And he goes, wow, this is really helpful. Thank you. I'm, I'm totally going to get started with this. Warren Buffett says, wait, 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 wait. Before you get started with your five career goals or your five primary goals, I want to know what were you thinking about doing with the other 20? And he said, well, you know, I'll squeeze them in to, you know, I'll, I'll focus primarily on these five. And then the other 20, I can just sort of squeeze in whenever there's time for them. But, you know, they're secondary. Warren Buffett said, no, 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 no. That's not how we do this. You've got to run like it's a plague from those other 20 items. Those other 20 items don't exist to you. Nah, -uh. <laughs> like you have to forget them, let them go. Because, and this is another Warren Buffett quote, the difference between really successful people and moderately successful people is that really successful people say no to just about everything. And so, you know, this concept actually coasts in really nicely into what uh, James Clear wrote about when he talks about four burners theory. I don't know to how much, to what extent I subscribe wholeheartedly to any of these, but I, I find them useful and interesting. So according to the four burners theory, this is James Clear now who's talking, there's four burners that we can have that we use energy for at any given time. There's work, friends, family, and health. If we want to be even remotely effective, we can't really have any more than three going at once. If we want to be moderately effective, then we really should limit it to just two at any time. And if we want to be an outlier, we can never burn more than one at a time. And there are some people who can work around this by delegating. So as an example, uh, the, the example I love is, um, oh no, Vaynerchuk, Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, he loved to give a ton of his attention to work and to his family, but he was noticing that his health was suffering. And so then he legitimately delegated out his health to a person. He, he called in a personal trainer meets nutritionist and said, your job is to be the CEO of my body. If I need to exercise, you need to tell me to get up and exercise. If I need to cut out a meeting short so I can do it, you need to tell me to do that. I'm leaving you in charge of my health. Not all of us can afford that, but I, another example could be, you know, the CEO parent who hires a nanny to help with her children and, and get the homework stuff done and all of the icky stuff that you don't want to do so that when, with the limited amount of time you do have with family, it's the mushy, gushy, lovey stuff. So 
It's an interesting concept. All of this is all well and good, but I do want to take a moment and, I don't know, give a caveat, maybe is the word I'm looking for, for highly sensitive people. Most people, 80% of them, can take pretty much any one of these and probably run with it and, and get some value out of it, whether it's my 15-minute rule that I'm so in love with or, you know, for Burner's Theory, you can mix and match, you can play with just about any of these. However, there's another thing that highly sensitive people really need to contend with, and that is highly sensitive people, as I've mentioned many, many times before, are the smartphones of people. We've got a lot of cool functions. So just as a quick reminder, if you're if, for those who are highly sensitive, they tend to process things more deeply. They're easily overstimulated. They have a lot of emotional depth, breadth, and granularity. And they have sensory sensitivity. So they have a sensitive sense of smell, often can see the subtlety in their environment, things like that. That positions them nicely to be creative. Uh, they tend to be pretty good at noticing patterns. Uh, they tend to be really good at uh, connecting with other people, though not always. Sometimes these, you know, it's not like if you're highly sensitive, you're naturally always kind. Some highly sensitive people are super self-absorbed and they're so busy fretting about their oversensitivities that they don't have any room to be able to look at the, the comfort of others. So I'm not trying to say that highly sensitive people are always awesome. Sometimes we are only pain in the butt. But... We are pretty effective as a rule. We've got some cool functionality. The problem is just like with a smartphone, you need to recharge it all the time. <laughs> it's obnoxious. So if you want to have the capacity for easily connecting, seeing the, the noticing subtle changes in your environment, being able to connect easily, being able to identify what's going on and, and adjust according to the patterns of behavior that you're seeing, you need to have a full battery. And this now brings me to Elaine Aaron's algorithm that leads to the capacity for a highly sensitive person to be their most productive, resilient self. Because to be clear, highly sensitive people, when they are well-rested and well-cared for, can be more productive and efficient and creative than the average person. But if they don't honor the way that their systems are wired, they end up being far less effective and kind of a pain. Again, they, they end up being just an emotional pile of goo. So here's her algorithm. Highly sensitive people should spend about eight to 10 hours in bed. I'm going to say that again. Highly sensitive people should spend about eight to 10 hours in bed. Now she does say that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be asleep for all of those hours, but you need to be in bed for at least eight to 10 of them resting. In addition to this, she recommends another hour or two of rest and reflection. So to give you an example, and again, I, I've now incorporated a lot of this into my life, but it's taken over a decade. So, you know, if you're sitting back going, yeah, okay, cute, but I'm not going to be able to do that tomorrow. Totally get it. But for example, I spend eight to, I, no less than eight hours in bed. Even if I don't sleep the whole eight hours, that's fine. I try and reach about nine because then if I do that, I pretty consistently get over seven hours of solid sleep. And that seems to be the sweet spot. If I can get at least seven hours of solid sleep, I'm good to go. Then when I get up, I spend 15 minutes doing some physical sort of stretches and yoga. Then I do my movement and breath. 
and then I meditate for 15 minutes. And then I get up and I, you know, do a little bit of journaling. That's my quiet time for reflection. I also take another hour during the day, sometimes in a large chunk and sometimes small chunks throughout the day for exercise, mostly walking and running uh, when I'm doing aerobic activity because I can listen to audiobooks and music while I do it and it doesn't require a lot from me, but I do try and also squeeze in strength training and the like. So anyway, in addition to that, HSPs need a solid day, a 24-hour day where they're not being productive. They're not doing anything. They don't have to be anywhere. They don't have to get any chores done. No laundry, no dishes. I mean, yeah, obviously you can cook for yourself, but the con- the idea is no chores. This is a day of rest. A whole day, every week. Dang. That's that one's rough for me. I won't lie. I'm I I'm kind of a perpetual motion machine. And then finally, the equivalent of one month off throughout the year, scattered throughout. So it's not like you have to take four weeks off in a chunk, but throughout the course of the year, ideally you have taken the the accumulation of four weeks off to rest, recover, play, all the things. So whether and this is another piece too that I, I want to bring to the fold, because Highly sensitive people, it's great if you're following this algorithm, even especially in conjunction with any of the other kind of frameworks we've talked about. But highly sensitive people also have a tendency to be extremely conscientious, which when well-rested and when regulated, just makes them fabulous people to work with. They not only will get the job done, but it'll get it done right and on time. <laughs> nice. However, when not well-regulated, it can go to the extreme of being hypercritical of their work and being highly perfectionistic. So it's sort of the the all-or-nothing mentality, which, to be clear, highly sensitive people aren't only guilty of. So this brings me to the next kind of concept of rather than striving for perfection, which, again, many HSPs have a tendency to move toward, it's better to look instead at, at the concept of the 1% rule. So I, I wish I could remember the name of the gentleman or, or the, the name of the team, but there was a story of, there was a team of bicyclists that had never won any kind of a, a race. And a coach came on board and said, okay, well, we got to fix this. And so he got to work and trying to help them. But he didn't tell them, you know, he didn't put them through some extreme boot camp. Instead, he said, okay, let's just take this one step at a time. Let's test the wheels. Let's try and find the best wheels for our bicycles. And then it was test the seats. And then it was helmets. And then it was testing, you know, what type of fitness bands to use. And then it was, okay, what's the best mattress or pillow or this or that. And over the course of the year, lots of improvements started being made. And he said, my God, you know, if you keep this up, I don't see any reason why we can't win in the next five years. He was wrong. They won in three. Woohoo. <laughs> and the point is, it wasn't because he pushed them all to do something wild and insane all at once. It was because he constantly was just asking them, do a little bit better today than you did yesterday. Just a little bit better. And I wrote about this in a blog article. I'll put the link in it. We have a tendency to think that to be productive, to be successful, it's got to be hard. We have to work hard. And I'm not knocking hard work. Hard work's done some great things for me. And, you know, my willingness to get my hands dirty has absolutely been helpful. But 
The assumption that for something to be meaningful and for it to work well, it has to be hard is faulty. You know, we have this assumption that like we've got an algorithm for happiness where in our culture we think, well, if I work really hard, I'll be successful. And once I'm successful, I'll be happy. But all of the researchers out there right now who are talking about happiness and and people's capacity to thrive and grow are discovering it's we've got it flipped. In fact, it's happy people, people who prioritize their health and their well-being and their joy, who are more creative and more productive. And that productivity is what leads to success. So I'm using the concept of the 1% rule here in conjunction with also whatever it is you're trying to achieve, make it fun. You know, Mary Poppins finding the element of fun. I know it's kind of silly and cartoonish, but it's legit. It's evidence based as well. And this is especially important for highly sensitive people, really for everyone, but especially for HSPs. We do much better when we are more attached to the process of a thing than we are to the outcome of a thing. Small, consistent change over time trumps big, inconsistent change all day long. (laughs) Which actually brings me to the next concept of the power of habits. Because we like to think that, oh, I'm going to make this one big, huge change in my life and then everything will be better once I lose the weight, once I find my person. But that's not real. Once you, okay, if you spend all of your energy trying to lose weight, that's great. But what do you think is going to happen when you stop doing the things that got you there? You're going to gain it back. That's why so many people who lose weight do gain it back. It's a lot of like micro habits that have to change to make that thing come to life. The same thing is true with relationships. So great. You found the love of your life. You're getting, you're walking down the aisle to your hubby or your, what, I mean, let's, let's take the, the gender dynamics out of this. You've partnered with someone that you just know in your bones is a good fit for you. Congratulations. You're not done. It's just started. You know, that cocktail of goopy, awesome, wonderful, you know, endorphins meets oxytocin meets all of that. I mean, it's lovely. You're not done. Now you have to work at this thing. And I don't mean work at it like, It should always be hard. I'm not talking about, I guess the difference here, whether it's with a job or a relationship, you want it to be the right kind of burn. When you're doing a good workout and you feel like, ooh, I'm just on the fringes of pushing past my capacity, that's the right kind of burn. If you're pushing so hard that your knees hurt, wrong kind of burn. Same can be true of a job and a relationship. So, okay, great. The habits are what's most important, not the outcome. Because habits, if they're sustainable, will lead to a lifetime of being able to... Whatever it is that you're seeking, if the process becomes your preoccupation and you enjoy that process, the outcome takes care of itself. But how do you build healthy habits? That's sometimes kind of sticky. Well, I'm going to be using the IMB model here. Information, motivation, behavioral skills. So the first thing you need to know is the what. What is it that you need to know to make this thing happen? In today's time, I rarely find it to be the case that people are struggling with the what. We are in an age of Google. There's no reason any of us should have a problem figuring out what to do. But the next thing you do want to take some time to figure out is your why. Why bother? Like in my case... I want to create the healthy sensitive. Well, that's great, but why? Well, a lot of it's selfish, or at least self-interest. 
I love talking about this subject. This is something that makes me come alive to do. But it's also, I went through a lot of hard work to figure out how to create a life that looks like me and allows me to be productive, to add value to my to those that I work with, uh, to add value to my relationships, while also staying sane and healthy. It took well over, it took, it took a lifetime to figure out, oh, my body's just a little different. That's okay. I can work with that. I can figure out how to hack the system. I'm really aiming though, like I felt alone for a good chunk of that time. I felt like there might be something wrong with me. I felt like I was weird and not in a good way. Now I know I'm weird, but like in a good way. <laughs> anyway, though, so that was, I thought, what if I could figure out a way to communicate with other people who might be struggling with the same stuff that I was so that they don't have to feel alone? And maybe if they get the skills and the tools that I have now, but like sooner, I can save them a lot of time. So that was my why. And now how do I do that? Well, with behavioral skills. And these are the skills that I find to be exceptionally important. First, you need to know what the thing is that you're doing. So set a specific action goal, not an outcome goal, to be clear. Action goal. So not, I'm going to write a book. You're going to write a book. Okay. No, no. Like, that's the outcome. I'm going to write for 15 minutes every day. It's not, I'm going to lose weight. You can't force the scale to move. Trust me, I've tried. But what you can do is exercise for 15 minutes every day and you can meal prep, you can eat more vegetables, you can drink more water, and that will help influence the outcome, but it's the habits that make all the difference. Next, you want to track your progress. So this is when it's helpful, like, okay, if you've decided to do 15 minutes of writing every day, how will you know? Well, I set a timer. If you've decided that you want to exercise for X amount every day, set a timer. Or maybe it's more about distance. Fine. Track the amount of mileage you're able to cover. So tracking your progress is huge. What we monitor moves. Next is organize your environment. Try as we might. If we So if I'm trying to eat healthier and the person that I live with wants to eat pizza every night, that's tough. Or let's say that there's pizza in my direct environment. That's going to be much harder. Organizing my environment is going to make it much easier. It's kind of the concept of, I mean, you might notice this, when vegetables are cut and ready and washed, we're more likely to eat them. Have you ever let an an entire watermelon go bad on your counter space because you just forgot to cut it into pieces in enough time? Whereas if you just take the dang thing, cut it into pieces right away, put it in a container, that sucker's gone. People just nibble at it. You, those in your family, anyone in your household. Same idea. When your environment is conducive to success, we are products of our environment. Next one, reward your efforts. I don't mean reward your outcomes. It's not like people do that all the time. Once I lose the weight, I'm gonna... Once I write the book, once I graduate, once I do the big thing. No, that's not gonna work. Reward the process. What can you put in place for yourself that allows you to feel rewarded as you go? Next one is nourish yourself, both your body with regard to healthy food and your mind and your your whole system with nourishing experiences. So if you're setting goals around exercise and the movement that you've chosen feels like punishment, that's not going to be a nourishing experience. Do something that actually feels good doing it. 
or even if it feels uncomfortable, what can you create? How can you make it so that it's a nourishing experience overall? And then the final one is get support. We are social creatures and we do so much better when we have support around us. And support can take a couple of forms. There's a supporter, like a champion, a a cheerleader who's saying like, I don't want to do that, but good for you. I'm happy to support you. (laughs) And then there's also a change partner. And that's someone who's walking along on the path with you. So as an example, in my case, I'm really trying to, I want to write a book and I keep saying it and I love to write. So why the isn't it happening? So I I reached out to a couple of people and said, I really want to write. And I knew that these people themselves were great writers. And so I said, are you having, what do you do when you struggle with this? And they said, well, come to think of it, I am struggling with it and I haven't been writing. So we all agreed 15 minutes of writing every day. And so we're keeping each other accountable. So now if I don't write for 15 minutes, I've got to tell somebody that I didn't write. And that feels crappy. Whereas telling someone that I did feels really good. The short version of all of this, you can find in Charles Duhigg's book, uh, The Power of Habit. If what you're really trying to do is create a habit, it really boils down to what is the cue in your environment, in your relationships, whatever. What's the action? And how are you rewarding yourself for that action? That's sort of the abbreviated version. So anyway, this is sort of the long way. I'm, what I'm hoping is true as I'm going through all of this content is that some nugget in all of this feels useful to you. I am going to include the notes in the podcast show notes for this. So if you're sort of like, oh, wait, 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 what was that? The Eisenhower box or Pomodoro method or huh? Like what? Um, so I will be putting this in the notes as well. But I also want to, uh, you know, a couple of just, I don't know, housekeeping to uh, Get ex- I'm excited about, you know, speaking of the healthy sensitive and all the things and projects I've been working on, uh, it is May, if you can believe it, and middle of May. My God, where does the time go? I don't know if you're aware of this, but May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And much of the research on mental health in terms of like, who are the people who tend to have the most robust mental health, it boils down to our habits and to what we're doing, how we're spending our time. So I bring all of this stuff up because I kind of wanted to lead with the how do we organize ourselves to make a change that feels engaging and exciting, but not overwhelming. And I put together a course in addition to this, uh, you know, like whole well-being for highly sensitive people. And if you go to my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com and you click on courses, uh, you'll find it. You'll see the link to all, all of my courses and it's 30 days of content. I've compiled a number of different activities. They're all evidence-based that you can experiment with to really build whole, robust mental health and vitality. I, in the course itself, I've also compiled a bunch of TED Talks because if you're a nerd like me, you want to hear from smarter people than just the podcaster you're listening to. <laughs> like, not just. I, I actually, I know some stuff. Uh, this is definitely something that I've spent. This is my life's work. So I know a few things. 
but it, it I love to collaborate and I like to pull from a bunch of people and, and stand on the shoulders of giants, if you will. So uh, again, if you go to my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com, you'll find that you can go to my courses and it's the well-being, like the, the well-being unboot camp is what I'm calling it. <laughs> so um, I really, I, I invite you to go ahead and take a look at that. If you don't want to buy courses a la carte, you're also welcome to join as a member. And there's a few membership options that are available to you. So take a look there. And if you have any questions whatsoever, even if if you're looking around and you're thinking, I don't really need to take any online courses with you. I just want to have this one question answered. Please don't ever hesitate to reach out. You can reach me directly at Leah, L-E-A-H, at thehealthysensitive.com. You can also reach me through the contact form on my website, although a few people have noted that they've had some trouble there. I, 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 see, I get a, most of them without any problems, but if you do have any trouble, just email me directly, leah at thehealthysensitive.com. And just to give you some uh, like updates on what's coming down the pipeline, June is Men's Health Awareness Month. So I'm going to be launching a, an online course uh, that focuses on highly sensitive men. And I, 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 in my experience, most men don't like to identify as being highly sensitive, even though there's equal numbers of those who have sensory processing sensitivity that are men and women. It doesn't favor a gender or it doesn't favor one of the sexes rather. However, if you happen to be a highly sensitive man and you're intrigued by this concept, I really I invite you to you know keep an eye out. I'm going to be launching that in June. Uh, you're also, of course, welcome to just email me. And you know, if you're someone who's listening and you know a man in your life that you love, you might find that the content is useful. And I'll be speaking to that topic more and more in the month of June through my podcasts and my blogs as well. So just something to keep up or keep in mind. But as for this month, it's about just cultivating your inner superhero baby like it's mental health how do you find your joy how do you organize yourself so that you can be in growth mindset and feel like you're getting like I say all the time the right kind of burn okay okay all done (laughs) um really hope to hear from you and I'm excited about some of the new offerings that are coming down the pipeline uh oh Final thing. Just kidding. Not done. Uh, keep an eye out for meetup groups every other week on Saturdays from t- 12 to 1.30. I have a topic that I put in place. I'm doing Zoom calls. It is complimentary, my friends. You do not have to pay for access. Uh, but just look on my website at www.thehealthysensitive.com and look for upcoming events and you'll see all of the different events that I'm putting up and they're all virtual. They're online. If you're someone who wants to join into the conversation, great. And if you're someone who really just wants to sit back and listen, great. If you want your video on, fabulous. If you want it off, fabulous. Doesn't matter. So please, uh, you know, I don't care how what degree of participation you want to, you know, bring forth. But I would just love, love, love to see you there. And uh, yeah, so now I really am done. <laughs> Have a wonderful, wonderful day, a fabulous week, and I will be staying in touch. Bye-bye.